With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A Teenager. Learning the Lingo. GOAT. G-O-A-T. Acronym stands for greatest of all time, as in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to the second half of Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also email me. I'd love to hear from you, Saturdays with Joy Keys at Hotmail.com. Remember, I give a lot of giveaways. I'm giving away some music. I had Kevin Ross on this past uh, Wednesday. He has a new album out. I'll be giving away his album so you want to follow on social media. But today I am speaking with someone like way over there uh, in Africa, Namibia, uh, author uh, Remy Gamaji. Am I pronouncing your name correctly, Remy? Ngamije. 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 Okay, so see, yeah. I got corrected. <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> like, I'm American, right? What do I know? But um, he's a very important Namibian. Um, he started... Um, a literary magazine, Doek. He's promoting arts over there. But he is also a wonderful writer, and we're going to be speaking about his book today. And I'm going to be giving away some copies of um, his book. This is his first book. He did uh, win Short Story Prize. Uh, I think it's the Commonwealth Award, correct, Remy? Yeah, 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 the Commonwealth Short Story Prize. Yes, yes. So congratulations on that. Thank you, thank you. Now, this book is called The Eternal Audience of One. I guess you're giving a nod to Shakespeare there, yes? <laughs> yeah, it worked, man. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite Shakespeare situations where he's talking about all of life is a stage. Uh, and then in the novel, the way it plays out, the question is like, but for who do we perform? Uh, mm-hmm. And the character in it assumes that it's for the eternal audience of one. That one being a very anonymous and unexplained one. Maybe we perform or we live life for ourselves, or maybe we live it and perform it for other people, or maybe there is some unknown power in the universe that's watching us scurry about our little lives. The answer is really very vague, but it's up to each reader to interpret it. But that's not to say you're correct. He's one of my, he's got bars for days, and he's a very influential writer on our part of the world as well. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it depends on who you are. If you're very religious, then you're probably thinking about mm. God, you know, at all the different mm. steps that you take throughout the day and throughout your life, and, and, mm. and you know, mm. is this choice in line with what God would want? But then, who is God? You know what I mean? Is it a He? Is mm. He? You know, or is it both? Um, you know, if, if you're a chauvinist, you might be moving this way. You know, if you know you're a feminist, mm. you're doing it this way. 
So, yes, I mean, we're all performing um, at different points, even throughout the day, sometimes for ourselves, you know, and that's yeah. how your main character, you know, he has all these yeah. different voices that um, yeah. are, are coming to him. But I'm, I'm, I'm going too fast. Let's start off no, with. No, not at all. Let's start off with. Okay, before we started, audience, we were having a good laugh. <laughs> <laughs> we were having a good laugh about some light skin things. Now, audience, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, I'm light skin, right? Okay, so <laughs> I, 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 I was like, what, 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 what are you guys? Some light skin things. But you know, the world, no matter where you are, there's colorism. You're in Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're in um, Peru, you're in Japan, mm-hmm. you're in Namibia, you know, you're in Morocco. Yeah. No matter where you are, there is colorism. And, you know, mm-hmm. you deal with that in your book um, with uh, some conversations when people are talking about having kids and the, yeah. type, of hair, the type of hair they're going to have. Um, mm-hmm. Now, is that something that is really happening in your part of the world still, that people are talking yeah, about I what, mean, what type of hair the nah, kid is going to have? Yeah, these things affect your life on a micro and macro level, right down to like the smallest details of your life. As you might know, uh, the history of Southern Africa is really the history of segregation and apartheid because apartheid mm-hmm. wasn't just in South Africa. It was all over Southern Africa. It was like a geographic condition. And uh, the things that were learned in that segregation period is that, you know, some races are preferable than others. And... All of it is basically in proximity to whiteness. The closer you are to whiteness, the better off you are, the better your life circumstances, your life chances, and everything else. But it affects, you know, everything from, it affected everything from who you could date, where you could be, who you could associate with, just like, you know, segregation everywhere else in the world and in the U.S. And over here, there's still a very, a lot of learned characteristics and traits from apartheid um, in that race is a big thing and the color of your skin matters. And not even just the color of your skin, it's about what tribe you're in and where, where, which city you come from. So you have some people who's like, no, I will never date somebody from that part of, of the world or whatever because of particular stereotypes and whatnot. But color is a very, very big thing. So just, just to start off from the beginning, I have to put a general disclaimer and say that what you have in the U.S., what you call colored, isn't the same over here. We don't have yes. the same mm-hmm. I was going yes. to mention that to them. I've had yeah, many African, yeah. yeah. I've had many uh, South African artists uh, on the show. Where we've talked about race yeah, and just yeah. other African yeah. um, from different um, countries. You know, talk about yeah. the issue of race and ethnicity and mm-hmm. tribalism. For us in America, I would say most of the African American people that I'm friends with, we always mm-hmm. have this problem understanding that well you're black and they're black. Why are you having a problem? But then there's the issue yeah. of tri- tribalism and, you know, yeah, who you yeah. can marry. You know, I just recently had yeah. an artist uh, on, uh, a writer, and the guy had been in America for 12 years and everything, and he was dating somebody. It was A book was about this, a guy. But he actually went back home. They found a wife for him, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she was, it was Ebo and... Um, and, and then he came back uh, and, and brought the wife over. Like, that was the thing. Even mm. though he had been yeah. dating somebody here in America, he could yeah. not marry that person. Yeah. Like, this was modern yeah. day, you know? No, so this, this, thing, this thing still happens to this very day. Who you mm-hmm. are, where you live, those things matter. They affect your relationship choices in very painful ways. Uh, I, and this happens in the book as well. And the reason why we were laughing was 
just to let the listeners know. Yes, let's tell them about that. We're talking about Ben Simmons and his and his ongoing contractual battles with like the Philadelphia Seven Sixers, and uh, over here in, in in Namibia amongst our friendship circles, when we, when the news was breaking out. We we all said, oh no, Ben Simmons is being so light skinned about this whole situation. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and that basically is our way of saying, you know, we interpret a lot of things through the prism of one's skin color, how how one can act, the privileges that are attached to particular skin colors over here. And so when we say, for example, and I was joking that, you know, Ben Simmons is being so light skinned about it, it's actually heralding and talking about a much larger, deeper condition over here, which basically says that dark-skinned black folks cannot have the particular kind of liberties or attitudes that certain light-skinned black folks might have because those things play out differently, not in the workplace, but in the social place, in the social sphere of life, in relationships. And so over here, it's, it's, we joke about it, but we say it with, like, with like this idea that like we know there's a a deeper problem we're not addressing. And so that was just the basis of that joke. Uh, and not at all to say anything bad about Ben Simmons. Or you, Joyce, since you say you're light-skinned. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, I, I, I am very well aware um, of my state of privilege, and, and but I am not white. I'm still black. Yes. So I will yes, tell yes. you, I know that I am treated differently than, say, you know, mm. darker-skinned black friends that I might have. I know that white people in many situations are more comfortable with me and because mm-hmm. they don't think I'm completely black. I yeah, always get yeah, the, conver- yeah. the conversation of, so, like, are you mixed? Like, what is, like, your, like <laughs> what's your family? Like, is your mom and yeah. dad? Like, and I have to be, like, black, black. Black, black, yeah, black, yeah. black, 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 I mean, black, 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 black. <laughs> what you're touching on is something that also comes out in the eternal audience of one about what it means to be black, like with both parents who are black, versus you are colored, which means, for example, historically that one of your parents might be um, white and one of your parents might be black. So that could define you as colored. But really, in Southern Africa, colored has also become a cultural denominator. So colored people have their own culture, their own ways of speaking, ways of being, and ways of making meaning in the world. So sometimes on on the surface, you can be colored in terms of your skin, but not in terms of your culture. And so even the idea of saying mixed race is it's also very contentious because in some ways it's taken as you're trying to differentiate yourself or distance yourself from being a colored person. Uh, all I'm saying is that out here in Southern Africa, it's very, the race question is very interesting. And it's, I'm glad that you're able to talk about this on, like, radio over there because these are not things that are spoken about here. It's still very hush-hush. They come out in literature and it seems to be explosive or, like, you know, like you're peeking underneath someone's skirt. But these issues about colorism are, they're they're ripe and ripe over here. So it was just it was just it was just interesting that you know you happen to be from Philly. The start of Ben Simmons happening, and you know I'm a smart mouth. So I was like, let me see if I can crack this joke. <laughs> Thanks for so much for running with this joke. <laughs> no, no, I love it. I love it. I was reading an interview you had done, and you mentioned that fiction is a world on a page where characters can be braver than some of the people you know outside, yeah. and that a place where justice can be delivered. And I think that's what's happening in your book. Let's, let's get back to your book. Let's tell the audience a little bit about the eternal audience of one. Tell them what it's 
a little bit, not everything, what it's about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and then um, we'll go into talking about it more. Yeah, so the story follows Seraphine. Seraphine is this young man born in Rwanda but not living in Rwanda. He grew up in Vintuk, lives in Vintuk, and that's currently his home setting, a forced home setting because, you know, he still identifies as an immigrant. And it follows him over the course of his final year in law school in a prestigious South African university. Um, and over the course of that year, different aspects of his life, both his past and his present and his eternal life are explored on the, uh, on, on the pages, how he makes friends, for example, his relationships with women, his, his role within his friendship circle. Not only that, but also his parents' history, where his parents come from, where they studied. So the story moves from, you know, it's, its origins are set in Namibia, but it's also set in Kigali in Rwanda. It moves to its there's a, there are chapters that are set in Nairobi in Kenya, and then there's also Paris and there's Brussels in Europe where certain parents studied. But over the course of the year, these histories are explored along with the meetings and encounters with other cast of characters within the story. So it takes part not only like in this physical plane, but also in, like, Seraphim's internal world, where you basically, like, see the weird way this young man arrives at his decision-making. And it touches on things of, like, migration, you know, where is home and how do you make home, what is community, how do you make community when you're not at home, friendship, marriage, love, all of these great and lovely themes to explore in the writing and, like, come through on the page. But I think the thing that I love most talking about it is the, I think, the modern and contemporary feel of the story. So there's like a lot of pop culture in this book that is, that is not alienating because we all have similarly, similar compass points in the world. You know, we all know, for example, who MJ is. When I mm-hmm. said MJ, we know, we, we know which MJ we're talking about because only one of them is called MJ. You right. know? So right. There's, a, there's, there's all of these similar things that you'd be surprised that all the way up in Philly translate over here as well. I mean, like you guys gave us the first print. Um, we know, we love that brother out here. So a lot of us only grew up on like Will Smith. So if we know nothing else about Philadelphia, we know that you guys had Will Smith at one point in time. So there's like all of these weird, there's like all of these weird things that we have in common without knowing that we do. And then basically those things bubble to the surface in the story to show even though we have all of these commonalities, we will still be treated differently based on geography, where you are in the world, uh, mm-hmm. your sex and your gender and your race and your skin color and all, your, all the other cultural markers in the world. Yeah. Let's, let, we can talk about that, you know, Jasmine and Jasmine. <laughs> I, 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 love, I, 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 I love, he has these two girls with similar names and he starts out like, you know, I guess boys, young boys would relate to, yeah. um, you know, the, the girls uh, when you're in high school, mm. but they both had similar mm. names. But there's a deeper story with those two because you talk in with them about class and race, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. status, all that comes out in your discussion mm. about these two Jasmine, Jasmine. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and and you also talk even with the party that your the, the family has. Oh wait, okay, okay. One of the best scenes, right? The sitting room. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In America, we also had a sitting room depending on yeah. the status of your family, and the, the, the things were covered in plastic. Yeah, that's, 
And it was like, what in the hell, man? It's so hot and sticky. Why do you have plastic? As a kid, this is what I'm thinking, right? But as an yeah, adult, yeah. as an adult, right, when I got my first, like, real adult furniture, I'm, I'm 50, mm. almost 52 now, but I got my real adult furniture. When people came over, I was like, damn, where's the plastic? I need <laughs> some plastic. <laughs> I'm like, watch it, don't, yeah. no, okay, you're going to eat that, like, why don't you go to the table? No, don't, don't sit on yeah, the sofa. Yeah. Like, don't sit on yeah. the sofa. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, there, there are all of these cultural markers that show how different classes of people not only try to signify their class, but also protect themselves. So I have deep respect for all the stuff like my mom used to do when I was growing up, because... Now that, you, as you mentioned, like when you start paying your own money, you're like, uh, not on my couch, you're not, sorry. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, if something happens to you, if you get stained, like, I can't afford to, like, A, one, clean this couch, or B, replace it. So you're like, no, thank you. Yeah, so I, I understand that. I, I totally relate. And, uh, you know, the, when you're touching on stuff, like, with the, with the lounge scenes or how families have memories, put up on the wall and how often with immigrant families there's just like a splurge like the walls are covered with memories because in a lot of ways that's all they have left they've already left their home countries and the only way they can still relate to it or at least have some form of dignity and show where they come from is to decorate their walls with all of these family photos i never understood that when i was younger but when i grew old i was like oh this is this is why a lot of immigrant families, for example, hoard pictures because you know, but the it's last America too. To home. Yeah. America mm. too, because when we think about the idea of home here for mm. African Americans, mm. we are not always allowed to live where we want. We are not always allowed yeah. to yeah. set up a home where we want. Mm. And historically, mm. African Americans, you know, were slaves, and then we had you know mm. Jim Crow mm. and all these things. We could yeah. not live. And once we did have mm. a home and it was successful, mm. you know, say like Black Wall Street or something like that, yeah, um, yeah. then they came, they white people came, it. Yeah. it was destroyed. So then we had to move somewhere else. So then we have a trauma. Just like your character yeah. and your family yeah. are dealing with a trauma. They came from Rwanda, and then mm. they were very successful, and then the war, they had to mm. leave. You know, mm, Let's, mm. can you tell the audience a little bit, maybe um, some people may not be familiar with what happened mm. in Rwanda and why maybe his parents, Saracen's parents, had to leave? Yeah, so uh, the Rwandan situation stretches all the way back to, like, the colonialism era of the country. But you have these two ethnic groups, the Hutus and the Tutsis, who at various periods in history were either favored by one colonial regime or another. But what came to pass in the long or short narrative of the history of Rwanda is that in, up until 1994, the majority uh, ethnic group of the country, the Hutus, were oppressing the Tutsis. And so with the death or slash assassination of the Hutu, then Hutu president, um, these long that ethnic hate came out and it played out very, very terribly and tragically on the national scene. And for everybody, I think anybody who knows anything about Rwanda just knows about that 1994 period. But for example, nobody knows the history behind it. It just seems like a moment of madness. And it is, but it is, it is, it is tension that has been building for decades, generations. And so 
it reached a critical boiling point, and that's how 1994 happened. But in and around this place, Rwanda was still, in many ways, a utopia for a lot of its citizens because a lot of them had gone abroad, studied abroad, and then they come back and they were in the process of making new lives for themselves. They were bringing, like, aspects of European modernism. They were building businesses. They were trying to, like, you know, move, do well for themselves. And then when the tragedy of 1994 struck, it felt like, well, all of it has been for nothing and we're being lost back to the past. And so that's, that's the tragedy of Seraphim's parents. They were this young, ambitious, up-and-coming couple who had, by virtue of their own will, like sheer will, they were on this path to success. And then they got derailed in a very tragic manner. They became uh, on paper, they became immigrants, but in their soul and in their bones, and they were refugees because even these terms are loaded and they have different classifications. And so the migration really took them not only away from their home, but away mm-hmm. from their ambitions, the dreams and goals they had for themselves. And ultimately, in their final settling, you can see the way migration favors, for example, male characters because, in a way, Everywhere, wherever capitalism is, it always favors the male sex, whereas the, 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 the female sex in a lot of ways is prejudiced against and is discriminated against. And so even in their final place of home, you can see the inequalities that come with migration. Migration is hard all around, but it is not the same experience for every person, depending on your cultural markers. And so even within the family, you can see how it affected them. But, you know, Joe, you can... You, you've probably seen this with, like, a lot of Americans who remember and lived through the Jim Crow days, the way losing um, a family home or a small holding or a farm oh, yeah, there was, or, there was or a, a great, business. The way, yeah, yeah, there was a great yeah. migration, That's, you know, mm, of African yeah. Americans from the south up to the north mm-hmm. and thinking that mm-hmm. the north was going to be better, and then there's still yeah. racism here. And as a matter of fact, historically... Yeah. Uh, people are not aware that New York was one of the greatest centers of slave selling Indeed. Uh, in history. Indeed. Indeed. Um, it was it was like yeah. an epicenter of selling slaves. Um, uh, yeah. so we don't realize that Central Park used to be a thriving African American uh, uh, community. Seneca Village, isn't it? Seneca, Seneca Village, Village yes. Oh, yeah, so yeah. so th- this this um, migration, similar to what happened to your family, um, some people fled in, tra- in, in a sense of from trauma. Uh, a war, mm-hmm. if you will, a racial war. You can put it, that's mm-hmm. the label, I'll put it for America. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, you guys are dealing with the Hutus and the Tutsis. And if somebody uh, put mm-hmm. them side by side, you yeah, know, yeah. it, and it I mean, looks those, the same. Those traumas, are, yeah, those traumas shape, you, I mean, if you speak to older folks and they have this sad sense of nostalgia where only they can understand what was and what they lost. Like you, when you're younger, you don't understand. You can't even comprehend, for example, what it means to leave not only assets but like a home, more than one home, a family farm. Mm. You know, for us, I mean, for me, for a young, I'm, I'm really, I'm very young. I'm 33. So for me, what I call loss is like, ah, crap, I forgot this thing at work, or I lost this pair of sneakers, or whatever. But I do not know the feeling of losing something that I diligently built or worked towards for decades, for generations, and then having that stripped away from me. 
I don't know how that shapes people. I mean, I'm aware of how it has played out, for example, in the Rwandan diaspora community, and that and it shows in a in a way in the book and the pages like these sad silences when everybody talks about the thing that they cannot talk about. But in that sense of community, when you're around people who have been hurt in the same way, that silence is like voluminous. Like you can just hear the unspoken thing. And the parents, for example, in the story understand and they're able to navigate that thing for themselves. But they're not able to tell their children, for example, why their children face the present hardships. Like, Yeah, like, it's difficult for them. Yeah, I can't explain to you why we are poor now. Like, because there was a time when we were not poor. Or, right. or they think, they, yeah, so those things are, or, you know, it's very hard for a father, like in the story, who it comes from a very proud background, was this young, up-and-coming go-getter, to finally be humble in a new job in the country that they migrate to. And yeah, to and he has to work on, on New, Year's, yeah. New Year's, you know, Eve and, and everything. Yeah. But there's also happy... Happy, funny things in the story. I want to talk about that a little bit. The main <laughs> character, uh, Seraphim, he has a group of friends, um, the High Lords, you, you talk, call them, Empire, uh, yeah. and they uh, get together and they're commiserating yeah. about their stories. Seraphim is a bit of a gigolo, okay? <laughs> he, he doesn't start polite, out like that. That's a very polite word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I gotta say that like that, you know. Um, I, I, I could say something else, but you know, I, I don't want to, yeah. um, you know, upset the author. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, 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 I am all good, man. Like, I'm just worried about your viewers. I don't want to like the FCC to shut you down, man. Oh no, no, no. That, that, it's fine. He was a whore, and um, <laughs> he, he um. <laughs> No, no, no. Let, let me put it this way. He made it clear yeah. to everybody what he was about. Uh, the problem mm. was a lot of women fell in love with him because mm. he was, like, mm. so easygoing and smart. And, mm. Um, mm. you know, he was a little pompous, but, but people yeah. liked that, you know, a little bit. He was pompous. Um, the funny thing about him, though, he was going out with mostly white girls. Mm, and mm. Uh, the character Nikkei kind of was like, was it Nikkei yeah. who, who stopped him and was yeah, like, Nikkei. Yeah. she was like, yeah, I, I knew you were always going out with white girls. And he was like, what? <laughs> how, how do you know that? How do you know yeah. that? Let me tell you, we have guys like that over here, and trust me, I know yeah. them. And sisters yeah. would not put up with their bullshit, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so interesting. I mean, you say there's like pockets, there's moments of humor and levity, and I think it is important that that came through in the novel because there's this narrative going around that, you know, if you write some story about Africa, it has to be poverty and war and flies and mosquitoes, and it's just bad. But, you know, there's everywhere in life there's some sort of hardship, but just like hardship, there's humor everywhere. And so there are these moments in the story that lighten the mood, and you're like, oh, my God, this is a universal experience. Who has not had high school or university heartbreak, that first person who puts you on the path to self-destruction, makes you lose yourself in the spouse, as you say over here. Um, and, I mean, who doesn't have that? And for him specifically, in the way this, I think it comes to in the novel, he, re- he, he goes out looking for unsolicited vengeance against the hurt that was committed against him, and he takes it out on the world in a particular way that's specific to him. 
Um, hence that jiggle narrative of that whore. He's a fuckboy. He's, 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 he's a wild man. But, um, <laughs> and it's done to address his hurt that happened to him. So he basically his rage is being taken, or his sense of hurt is being taken against the world. And, the, and I think the weird thing about him is that he's aware of this because he even articulates and he says, you know, when you've been hurt, you either do the homework or you just focus on the hurt. And he just constantly decided to do one thing. And so when you bring up that angle of, like, you know, he was congregating just white or light-skinned or Indian or colored girls in Cape Town, I mean, that is also a situation that exists in Cape Town itself where on the colorism scale, light-skinned people are seen as more sexually attractive or they have a, bit, a higher hierarchy on the on the ladder of the desirability, if you want to call it that. And so because class and privilege is still very big factors, you have people actively trying to get as close to those um, people, uh, to get as close to them as, as, as much as possible. And that, for example, is also a, a commentary on the sexual, or rather the relationships that play out in Cape Town. A lot of people date with all of these things in their minds. Like, no, you're too dark-skinned, or you're too Indian, or you're too that and the other. And so, you know, in encountering Nike, it is, I think, I don't think it was a maybe conscious bias, but then it comes out. I think for him, he was just like, look, if you walk, if you breathe, if you're of consenting age, we can get it on. <laughs> perhaps, but because he's, he's, he's perhaps maybe in the, uni- and then again, in the university that he is in, with a character like that who is smart, I guess, witty or charming or, or um, with oh, no, a friend that you have, there's a danger you start being, yeah, you become, you often do these things or you suddenly seen as not black because you are all of these so-called sophisticated things. And mm-hmm. so maybe that explains the people that is around. And obviously these are like very nonsensical markers of what it is to be a classy or smart person. They're more than just, and so when he encounters Nikkei, like this unavoidable confrontation with things that have been happening in the past, whether it's been conscious or unconscious. And I mean, she was smart. Remy, Remy, why don't you you read some of the book a little bit for them? Because we're kind of running close to time here. So read a little bit from the book. Do you have a specific place that is your favorite. Oh, God. I love the character Maxim, but that, that's not the main story. But Maxim, the haircut, the, the, the barber, <laughs> you know, he got big, big trouble, big, big trouble, and then the story starts. I love that part. I love that part. But um, no, right. no, no, no. Wherever you choose, wherever you choose is fine. <laughs> no, let, let, me, let me try and find my theme. Um, okay, so I will find a nice, a nice section. So this is in a bar, takes place in a barber shop in Cape Town. Seraphine and his group of friends have come to get their hair cut. And Maxime is the man. Like, he is he's the <laughs> character in that barbershop who talks and prophesies everything and his words are wisdom and everything else. And so I'm going to read from page 267 and just halfway through the page. And so I've already given you the background of Maxime. He's a refugee in South Africa without papers. So this, is, this makes it a little more hilarious for him. And so Maxime then says, with a pair of clippers and a crown in front of him, he could become a kingmaker. With everything handled on a cash basis, there was no need for him to present anything to the shop's owners besides his own combs, clippers, hairsprays, and oil. The shop's foot and head traffic was constant. The money was good. 
and the conversations you could have with his clients and other barbers. Also, illegals from Cameroon, Central African Republic, and Congo were always loud and amusing. So I walk into the restaurant and ask the waiter to change the channel to the Chelsea soccer match. I tell her, my sister, if you change the channel, I will sit down and eat. She says, okay, she will change it. So what do I do? I sit down and order. Didier Drogba is killing this one. It is a hot match. He's driven like this and like that. Suddenly the channel goes to rugby. Home affairs. Home affairs is the colloquial term for South Africa. For South Africa, is playing the All Blacks. I call the waiter over and I tell her, my sister, when I came in and when I came in, I said I would eat here if you let me watch the game. Now I've even ordered from page three, where the prices are not small, small. But now I am spending it in your restaurant. But I'm spending it in the restaurant. I have a family home where I should be sending the money to. And now, my sister, you're telling me I'm a watch home affairs day rugby. Maxine pauses, cutting, and looks around the barber shop. I look at her and then I tell her, "Get the fuck out of here." La Bellon barber shop, just off the main road in Mowbray, nearly had its doors blown off its rusty hinges from the explosion of laughter. Some of it escaped beneath the door and spoke onto the pavement strewn with cigarette butts and flyers announcing gold would be bought for cash. Two things were promised a labellum, a haircut and a story. Everyone who came in for a trim or a cut joined the queue on the couches unless they were elevated to big boss status, a jump facilitated by the size of the tip given to Maxime. As soon as he saw a big boss walk in, Maxime would come over and pull him into a bear hat. He would walk back to current customer, make his pickles dance and wore a finish the job and usher the big boss to his seat ahead of everyone else. What style do you want? Something new or you want the usual? Maxime would ask. His haircuts were an institution, a rite of passage from boy to man, from ordinary mortal to head-turning lady killer. When he was finished, Maxime would pull off the cover with a flourish, like a matador taunting a bull, and make the same joke. I've done what I can do. From here on out, you're on your own. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, he's a, he's a lovely character, and he, he also touches on those aspects of gender and, like, the way men will talk about women when there are no women around, and I thought the mm-hmm. barbershop was mm-hmm. a wonderful setting, because, man, girl, I'll tell you the thing that I've said in barbershops will shock you. So no, here's, no, here's no, a little yeah. bit of, like, randomness. You know when the U.S. women's team was winning the World Cup? Okay. Yeah, and you have your captain. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. you know the name of your captain? Yeah, you know her, you know her name? Yeah, the late, yeah mm-hmm. she was a big deal over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you. So I went to get my hair cut, uh, uh, like, in and around that period. Um, and um, I walk in, and then there's another guy who's trying to get a hair cut. And, and immediately they say, Oh, you want the lesbian? I'm like, what? What the heck is the lesbian? And I'm like, no, it's the, the lesbian haircut. And yes, I'm like, what in the you world? Mean the lesbian haircut. Yeah, and so, and so, and so they say no. And then this guy looks at his phone. He shows the haircut that he wants, and the barber looks at it like, yes, we know this one. It's called the lesbian haircut, and it's a picture of Megan Rapino. Uh, Rapino, I don't know how you say that name. Rapino, and yeah. I'm like, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah, is that how? So that's the, that, that, that haircut is now just going to be called the lesbian. Like, that's just what we're going to call it now. Anyway, but, like, that's, like, a weird aspect, like, of stuff that happens, like, in barbershops. Especially, oh, no, but that's especially like the, reason, the, time. the reason I also like it, because that's what happens here. I used to actually date a barber, and I remember <laughs> – um, no, no, seriously, I did. When I was younger, I dated a barber. He had his own shop, 
And, you know, yeah. I would go there, and I used to have a certain haircut, and he would shape up the back of it. It was like yeah, this, like, yeah. wedge, swingy thing going, uh, you know, it was real cute and everything. At least I thought yeah. I was. But uh, anyway, so, but, you know, he would have the dudes, but what I would leave. Because once we started mm. getting more guys, then I know, okay, this uh-huh. is time. All right, I got I got I got a jet you know? because they were trying to yeah. be polite because of me. But I think that's yeah. something like you know Americans can also relate to is the barbershop, yeah. you know, men in the barbershop. You know, so, you know what else is? You know what's the opposite of that, Joy? I used to have cornrows, and to my shame, I had cornrows long after Ludacris had cut his. So. Ah! so, <laughs> <laughs> so I used to go get my hair braided at a women's salon, and that is. That is an adventure because uh-huh. in, everything will always be quiet because like oh fuck there's a man here yep, and then you know yep. I have my hair picked out and but if this was after a couple of months of getting my hair braided then they started to relax around you and I was just a very quiet guy in the corner always into the, the same uh, hair hair braider and then after a while after like they realized okay this one is sort of okay at least it's quiet not telling us shit you know and the stories. You would hear the gossip. Oh my God! Like I think some point, at some point they just forgot I was there, and then they like let it all hang out. That was that was a life, of, a whole adventure, and I get the chance to write about that. Hopefully, because women's hair salons when like when men are not around is crazy, crazy. Yes, love it. Well, yes. it's, it's called a safe space. You know, it's a safe space. Yeah, yeah, safe space yeah. for women, and the barbershop yeah. is a safe space for men. But, um, you yeah. know, this is a, a wonderful story. You know, talk about college life. You talk about the family life, the, the life of an mm-hmm. African child and their predestined uh, uh, point of uh, success <laughs> that, that, that's already planned out by the time they're born. As soon as they get their breath yeah. and they come out the womb, the African child is supposed to go to school. They're supposed to get at least two yeah. degrees. Three would be mm-hmm. great, but at least two. You've got to get your undergrad and your master's. And then you yeah. have to have children before you're 30 because if you're 30, then you're oh, too yeah. old, and, and especially for yeah. women. Oh, my God. Like, if you're yeah. 30 and you're not yeah. married, what's wrong with you? What's happening? Mm-hmm. You know, do you need some help? Um, they're always finding yeah. some help for you. You know, I have a lot of friends who are African, <laughs> uh, and, and I know, like, you know, they'll be like, yeah, yeah, no, the, no he's, he's going home to get a wife, and then they come back and they have a wife. It's like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you, but, know, um, you, know so, some, you know some real people, man. <laughs> oh, no, I know some real people. I know people from South Africa, from Namibia, from Morocco, yeah. from Kenya, um, yeah. all over the continent, and and let me tell yeah. you, you're all the same. You know, it's, it's the, the, the <laughs> in the sense of that general, like you know, expectation of what you should be yeah. as, as a as yeah. a person, and protecting yeah. the family, the family name. Don't embarrass the family. Yeah. You know, but in America, it's the same way. Like my daughter, I remember telling her like she had to go out and make sure everything was put together and her hair was done. I said, it's not about you, it's about me. Because you're going to go out in the street. No, no, listen, 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 Remy. She's going to go out in the street, and your hair is going to be a mess. And they're going to be like, did her mother not teach her how to prepare herself, yeah, how, to, yeah. how to get yeah. together and everything? That's about me. <laughs> no, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, those, those similarities exist everywhere. When you're living in a community or in a family, there's also a lot of pressure to make sure that that community or family has a particular type of status or prestige because that's how that family survives. You know, like you can't afford your social status to be lowered by your daughter's 
unkept hair because you understand the consequences of that. Then you people might think you're an irresponsible mother or mm-hmm. you don't have money to look after your kids' hair. Mm-hmm. Those things come back to you in very, very, you know, un- unforeseen ways. So being aware of that is not it's not bad in and of itself. It's just a condition. I think it's a condition for survival. I think wherever you are in the world, you need to quickly understand what the social norms are, what, what, what people look for and look at, because those things affect, you know, in the, in the States and over here, those things affect whether you're going to get employed or not. And how are you going to make a living? If you, how are you going to make a life for yourself if you don't have a job? Because you maybe made the mistake of not being aware of, like, what the hair culture in a community was. So mm-hmm. while there are a lot of these negatives, those things are attached to, like, necessary survival. So I understand you telling your daughter, and be like, girl, let's fix this hair before you leave this house. <laughs> because, I, you, you know, you also don't want this gossip coming up at, like, Thanksgiving dinner or, like, at the cookout. It's like, Joy, <laughs> sister, let's talk about your daughter. And be like, what's wrong with my daughter? Oh, no, no, you don't need that in your life. <laughs> Remy, this was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. The book is great. Uh, it's, it's a very intellectual book, but then there are also very simple points in the book. It's, it's something for everyone. Yeah. I, I would say it's a, it's a male-focused book because the main character, Seraphim, you know, you're really watching his development, like you said, mm. Um, mm. over this period and then memories that he mm. has. But I think uh, if you're a woman, um, if you're non-African, you can still relate. As you can see, I related to many points uh, in this this book myself, you know. I'm going to give away some copies of your book. Um, Are you on social media, Remy? Uh, Tell them where you are and how they can follow you. Yeah. No, I'm on Twitter as Remy the Quill, R-E-M-Y-T-H-E-Q-U-I-L-L. That's also on. Instagram and on Facebook as well. Just type in Remy, it should come up. And then uh, my website is also RemyTheQuill.com. So that's how you can get in touch with me or follow my work and everything else. And, and Joy, um, firstly, uh, before, you, before everything else, thank you for making time for this conversation. It's wonderful to be speaking to you all the way out in Philly. Uh, thanks so much for taking time out of the schedule to consider this book and to speak with me and your audience about it. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Again, it's a wonderful book. It has so, so much. It's it's very dense, um, but in a positive way, like I said, there's so many points where people will, you know, connect with Mm -hmm. family, with school, with legacy, tribalism, being a refugee, uh, immigrant, um, you know, Mm. working, um, women, again, women, (laughs) again, women. Did I say that? Like, Joy, you are, you, you are, you are, you are, no, you're giving me life right now. We're, uh, that, was, that, was, that was perfect. That, that, is, that, that should be like the marketing blur. <laughs> <laughs> okay, real quick, before we get off, what's some of your favorite um, Namibian foods that you eat or can you cook? What, what's some of your favorite foods that you eat? Oh, no, I can, I can cook pretty well. But what? The regular Excuse food. me? Yeah, oh, no. oh, I live by myself. So, so, so real talk, Joy, before I dive into that, real talk was uh, my mom, uh, before she passed on, she used to, like, give me and my brothers, like, these little tidbits of wisdom. Uh, and I remember when I was going off to university, one of them she gave me was, you know, 
You must never be tracked by a woman for the simplest things in life, like because she does your ironing. So you better learn how to iron. So we knew all of these. <laughs> we knew all of these domestic things from a very young age. So we did. I love, I love your mom. I love your mom. Tell her I said hi because just, that's awesome. Yes. Yeah. So she was just like, don't ever be tracked by like small domestic things that you should be able to do by yourself. And so I learned how to cook like in my mom's kitchen, so we know. But the Namibian foods that we do cook here are like for a staple is called pap. Pap is a it's maize flour that's been cooked in water and then it thickens and becomes this very fluffy thing and that is wonderful. And then there's also we do a lot of brides. Brides are the American equivalent to be a barbecue. So mm-hmm. it's a very big national thing to be able to bride food well. I can buy almost anything except fish is a big, I'm still learning how to figure that out. Okay. And, uh, everything else from steak to pork chops or whatever, we we, bry, we love a good fry out here. And then <laughs> the rest are other cultural foods that, for example, belong to specific tribal communities that I, because I'm not from here originally, I don't know how to cook those dishes, but over here on a regular basis when I'm cooking for myself, I enjoy a good stir fry. I'm, yeah, stir fries are my really, my, my big passion, and I'm trying to get more into Asian cuisine because I just enjoy cooking that. And it's, you know, relatively quick and easy when I have long days and whatnot, but I enjoy cooking. So, yeah, shout out to mom because she made sure, like, mama didn't raise no food. <laughs> <laughs> no, she did not. No, she did not. And she also raised a wonderful writer. Thank you so much, Remy, for, for coming on um, the show today. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Joy. All the best with the rest of your day over there. And hopefully, you know, Ben Simmons stops, stops being light in about this thing and tries to go win a championship these days, you know. <laughs> ben, 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 Simmons, ben Simmons needs to learn how to cook from Remy, maybe. <laughs> no, all the best with everything so much. This is the first thank time you. I'm talking to someone from Philadelphia. So thanks for this novel experience, man. Thank all you so right. much, Joy. Thank you so much. Right. You have a great weekend. I'll talk to you later. Okay, you bye-bye. Too. You too. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with author Remy Dramija. Oh, God, I'm going to kill me about that. But we talked about his book, um, The um, his, his, this is his first book. We also talked about racism. We talked about immigration. We, we talked about so many things. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. I'm going to give away some copies of his book. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Uh, you can also email me, SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. Um, Thank you again. We, we just had a wonderful time. I know this show usually is only a half an hour, but we were just having a good time talking and chatting. It was a great conversationalist. I hope you guys uh, enjoy your weekend. Stay nice and warm and cozy and uh, maybe drink some hot chocolate. Oh, and don't forget to vote Tuesday. Vote, vote, vote in Philadelphia. All right. Talk to you later. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting a Teenager Learning the Lingo. Goat. G-O-A-T, acronym, stands for greatest of all time, as in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.